Welcome to Cyberside Chats from Epic, a global legal services provider. Hosted by Jarek Beeson, Chief Information Security Officer at Epic, Cyberside Chats is where professionals come to hear CISO and industry leader insights on the latest news and trends for cybersecurity and privacy in the legal industry. Welcome to Epic Cyberside Chat where we are excited to be developing content for and by the legal and privacy industries. Now, there's a lot of content out there in media, social media, but we really don't see a lot of it when it comes to the legal industry and cyber specifically. And we're seeking to address that on our show. My name is Jarek Beeson. I'm a senior vice president and the chief information security officer over at Epic, and I'm your host. So we host a legal podcast. We're on cyber. It's about time we actually start engaging a cyber attorney. Cyber law practices are popping up all over, and it's one of the hottest areas to specialize in for incoming lawyers. So for our show, we're going to talk to someone who founded a cyber law practice for a major law firm. Our guest is Eric Weinick. Throughout his career, Eric has represented a wide array of commercial and financial firms, entrepreneurs, individuals, as well as domestic and foreign governmental agencies. He's been before regulators, state and federal courts, and alternative dispute resolution tribunals. His experience includes privacy and cybersecurity, bankruptcy, commercial torts, defamation, slander, and regulatory, to name a few. You know, we have him on this podcast because he is the co-founder of his firm's privacy and cybersecurity practice, and he's contributed to multiple thought pieces, thought leadership pieces on cybersecurity, including an article that we may even get to today. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. Is there anything else that you want to share about yourself? Uh, no, I I appreciate the pretty comprehensive introduction. No worries. Google is my friend. So the article for today's show comes from Lawfare Blog and is titled, What is a Cybersecurity Legal Practice? As always, the article is in the show notes for anybody that wants to take a deep dive themselves. But this article is specifically written by a founding member of the General Counsel's Office for the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, also known as CISA or CISA. And for those that aren't familiar, this agency was formed to lead the effort to enhance the security, resiliency, and reliability of our nation's cybersecurity communications infrastructure. I think it was last year that I saw their budget was about $3.16 billion with a pure focus on cybersecurity. Needless to say, anything coming out of this organization on the topic of cybersecurity has some weight behind it. And I just felt like I needed to give that little bit of backdrop just to make sure that people understood uh, what CISA is and, and why what they have to say is important, given that they're still fairly new and they're an agency that most people haven't really heard about. So to go into this article, this article covers in great depth what a cyber legal practice entails. But as someone who has both stood up one and is running one, I'd like to know your thoughts, Eric. What is the value that one would get from a cyber legal practice? Or in better words, why should an organization have a cyber attorney? Well, I think that the, the article does a nice job of spelling out, A, the, the need for outside privacy and cybersecurity legal counsel as well as the many individual disciplines that come into play and are part of a comprehensive practice. When we started our practice here at Otterberg, we very purposely involved lawyers with different 
backgrounds in terms of practice areas. So we brought together attorneys with experience in corporate matters, finance matters, regulatory and litigation, because privacy and cybersecurity truly are truly is a, an interdisciplinary practice that requires all of those expertise, depending on where in the life cycle of an organization we're at, be it the founding and, and startup phase, the product or service rollout or maturity, merger, acquisition, you name it, there is an, not just an opportunity, but a real need for privacy and cybersecurity counsel to, to be involved. The, the primary reason, though, that there should be outside counsel involved is, is, is severalfold. First is they can afford, if we're talking in the reactive phase, where we're uh, either trying to mitigate or respond to an intrusion or cybersecurity uh, incident, if done properly, the retention of counsel and the count by extension counsels, then retention of outside technical experts can be cloaked within the attorney-client privilege, which affords a, a huge protection when it comes to litigation that may follow an incident. Of course, as I mentioned, all of those various expertise that legal counsel can bring in, knowledge of regulations, we can talk maybe later if there's time about the hodgepodge of regulations that are out there at the state, federal, local level, as well as in, in self-regulating organizations and voluntary obligations that organizations take on either by contract or by implied covenant. One of the other reasons to bring on outside counsel when it comes to privacy and cybersecurity issues is they bring a measure of objectivity that internal personnel at an organization, no matter how experienced and no matter how well-educated they are, are just not going to have because we're human beings and we, we get defensive sometimes. We have self-interest and, and ownership stakes when it comes to our, our own organizations, and sometimes it becomes difficult for us to take an objective view of a situation. And so outside counsel can bring that objective and, and outside view to a situation. And, and a final reason to involve outside counsel is they have relationships outside of the organization that uh, may come into play, such as pre-existing relationships with regulators, with law enforcement, with uh, technical experts, and just other people out in the field that perhaps someone in-house in either a legal or a CISO uh, capacity may not have, have access to. So, so those are uh, some of the reasons to involve an outside attorney at all phases of privacy and cybersecurity consideration. Okay, that was that was a lot of information. I gotta, I gotta admit, a little bit more than I anticipated. <laughs> but let me let me try to try to break this down. So it sounds like, if I were to really simplify, there are two times when someone would want to think about bringing in a cyber attorney 
pre-breach and post-breach, right? And, and pre-breach, we're doing a lot of the preparation with some of the program, some of the regulatory things at various phases, startup, product rollout, M&A. And then there's post-breach, which is fairly self-explanatory. Is is that effectively what you're saying? Yeah, I, w- I would maybe make it two and a half or three. I would maybe make it at, at the beginning of a product or service lifestyle life cycle to just begin to think about some of the cyber and privacy implications of whatever product or service the organization is going to roll out. And then as they get a bit more mature, as you mentioned, breach mitigation and breach preparation, as well as things like you mentioned, M&A, due diligence uh, for for potential business arrangements such as partnerships, bringing on vendors, things like that, and then certainly in responding to an incident. But ideally, when you're you're not bringing on new counsel for the first time when an incident occurs, ideally uh, there's a pre-existing relationship. You have somebody on speed dial, or as I like to say, actually written on on a piece of paper, because if you have an incident where your systems are frozen and you don't have access to uh, to your phone numbers and your pre-existing plan, it, it might be problematic. So uh, having a pre-existing relationship with an outside law firm, uh, so you know who you're going to call, you know who from your organization is going to be involved, is very important in responding effectively to any type of incident. I absolutely agree. Having legal on speed dial documented on paper and in digital form from a contact information perspective, point of contact perspective, when to bring them in, how to bring them in, that that is definitely a, a big part of any cyber incident response plan. So, so let's go back to your, your point around at the beginning of a product life cycle and throughout that product life cycle. If a company, well, well there's, there's companies with products and there are companies with services. Are we specifically talking about companies with a shrink wrapped or some type of technical product or just anything that a company delivers to its customers and clients? I, I think it's really anything because from the least technical to the most technical product, from the least sophisticated to the most sophisticated service, every provider or manufacturer is coming into contact with, if not collecting and storing data. And much of that data may be sensitive. And even if it's not sensitive from a statutory perspective, it may be sensitive from a customer relationship perspective. And so what we really have an obligation as professionals involved in privacy and cybersecurity is to educate our colleagues on the delivery side of things to make privacy and cybersecurity part of their everyday approach to conducting business so that they're constantly thinking about potential privacy and cybersecurity ramifications. So it's not just (coughs) whether a a technical hardware component let's let's take an internet connected thermostat right so it's not just something that's technical like that that's going to connect to the internet that we're thinking about in terms of privacy and cybersecurity it could be a consulting firm it could be a, a law firm law firms are rich targets for 
cyber criminals, and it, it's something that needs to be thought about at, at every step of the of the process. Got it. You know, I was I was trying to get to the scope conversation is so who exactly fits into the scope? But it sounds like any company that collects data in any way, shape or form is in scope for having a cyber attorney in some level of capacity. Depending on what you do, you may need more services or a retainer or something along those lines. But generally speaking, every company interacts with data, so they should have some level of focus throughout the entire life cycle of what they deliver to their customers as it relates to cyber. I, I think so. And it's not just it's not just the data. It's what is the company's reliance on electronic systems to conduct their business. So I always like to use the example of a of a trucking company. If they are reliant on uh, computer systems and software to take in orders from customers for for pickups and drop offs and scheduling and routing and, and all of those kinds of things. If they're not thinking about cybersecurity, it's problematic. If the people that rely upon that trucking service are not thinking about cybersecurity, it's problematic. If the trucking company's source of financing, their lender, the, the person that provides their line of credit, isn't thinking about their cybersecurity, it's problematic. So it's it's not just a company or an organization such as a law firm that obviously comes into contact with very highly sensitive data. It's any kind of organization that relies on electronic systems to be able to to function. Got it. Okay. No, that that makes a that makes a lot of sense. Once again, you know, that pretty much makes it clear if you are a company, you need some type of cyber legal support. It doesn't really matter what it is that you're offering. There is something that is going to intersect with privacy or at the very least the reliance on technology. That's right. So, and it's it's uh, sorry for interrupting. It's it's not just the for-profit realm that we need to worry about. It's the not-for-profits, the educational institutions, healthcare organizations, all of these entities that rely on technology, rely on electronic systems and have access and collect sensitive data that, that need to be very mindful. You know, I initially planned on talking about both sides of the equation, you know, the preparation type of activities and the response. I think I'm probably going to have an entire episode on just the response because there's so much involved in that. Sure. Let, let's double click a little bit more on the preparation. So Absolutely. I think we've we've clarified the scope. And so the, the listeners now understand, OK, I need to have a cyber attorney help me in some way, shape or form. What are some tangible examples of what that initial interaction will look like? They call you up. They say, hey, Eric, I listened to the podcast. We have not tackled or even addressed cybersecurity from a legal perspective. What's what's the what are the first couple of things that you're going to do? You're going to ask them to start moving the needle to the right on that. Sure. I, I think one of the first things that we need to do is understand the operations of the organization. Who's in charge of, of what is there? Is the organization large enough that they have an IT director or better yet, a, a CISO? What is the most sensitive data that they have? Is it protected? Do they have an outside organization that is looking at their data security and advising them? If not, 
How soon can we bring somebody in? And there are what I want to impress upon listeners is that there is a host, there is a menu of services that are available in the initial and ongoing phase of breach mitigation and, and prevention to choose from. You don't have to go out and blow the budget on cybersecurity to realize an improvement in your level of protection. A relatively small expenditure for some some legal analysis and some outside technical analysis can go a long way in buttoning things up. So, so for example, just bringing in a an outside technical consultant through counsel to conduct some penetration testing to map out your architecture to see, for example, are things siloed? Does if somebody gains access to the email account of somebody in shipping, does that give them access to human resources and and all of the treasures that can be found there in terms of data? And so those are some relatively simple things that can be done to mitigate in the in the event of an intrusion. And those are some of the questions that outside counsel can help you walk through. You can also, in the initial phase, what we want to do is understand the various jurisdictions that the organization is subject to. Is it subject to GDPR? Is it subject to uh, the new statutes, say, in Virginia? Uh, are there SEC concerns? And so we can start to build that understanding of what are the, the legal obligations. Um, just undertaking a review of current contracts and agreements that the organization has in place can be eye-opening because oftentimes we see that they've made covenants and warranties about their own cyber preparation that they're in default on on day one simply because they're not aware of their obligations. These are the some of the initial housekeeping items that we take a look at when we're called in. I'll note that one of the requests that we're getting most frequently lately is for us to confirm that the privacy policy that people have posted on their website is satisfactory or they're asking us to prepare one for them as people race to compliance with with various statutes such as as those in California and, and GDPR and elsewhere. Thank you for that. So the the first part of what you talked about seemed a lot like consulting. I come from the big four world and I see a ton of parallels with what type of data do you have? What type of risk assessments have you done? What type of org structure do you have? Do you have IT leadership? Do you have security leadership? Do you have privacy programs in place? And here's how we can help you get there. That seems like consulting. And I'm curious on what your thoughts are on why someone would come to a, a law firm for that versus a consulting agency. And then the second part to this is everything else you said, you know, is is the SEC um, in scope and do we have the right privacy wording on our sites? Things like that make a ton of sense to me and I don't see a, a parallel with other organizations. So for that for that first part, why would someone come to a law firm to provide that which a consultancy could probably provide at a at a lower rate. 
Sure. Well, I, I, A, I'd like to think to, to plug ourselves that at least at Otterberg, we, we provide very competitive rates to the consultancies. <laughs> fair enough, but, fair enough. But, but from a, a more substantive standpoint, what the consultancy can't offer is to advise the organization on whether or not it is in compliance with applicable regulations, whether or not it's in compliance with the contract's that it is a party to. So that's the major distinction between what a consultant might be able to offer and what a lawyer can offer when it comes to privacy and cybersecurity, as well as if you're providing a client with legal advice, that should be, all else being equal, a privileged communication that should there be a later event it can be argued that that is not discoverable by the plaintiff's firm because it's a privileged communication where I'm advising a client on how to comply with the law or with a contractual provision. So that's that's the first part of why a lawyer over a consultant. I think that's a powerful response and you're giving a teaser to a future episode that we're going to have around around privilege and what that means when it comes to, to cyber incidents. So so we talked about first, you know, the formation of an organization and product life cycle. We've we've talked about what you would actually request of and how the initial engagement would go if someone contacts your organization and says, help me with this cyber legal stuff. I don't understand it. You also touched on MA and MA cyber in in my opinion, is an area that is often underlooked, overlooked, I should say, actually, from a legal perspective and just a cyber perspective mm-hmm. in M&A at all, altogether. It's, it's overlooked. There are some IT due diligence things that are done, but truly understanding is the organization that we are getting ready to acquire. Are they breached already? Uh, are they introducing risks and vulnerabilities that we don't currently have? Are they lowering our risk profile? That's a conversation that's not had often enough. We've seen some public things with, you know, Yahoo and Verizon and the devaluation of Yahoo because of it. We've seen Marriott and Starwood and the fact that Marriott had to deal with the Starwood breach that happened prior to their acquisition. So we've seen some really high profile cases where it's necessary. But some people just look and say, well, those are the large organizations. We're just, you know, a small company, you know, bringing in 200 people organization. There's nothing serious about that. What do you say to that? What I always say to the naysayers of why would anyone want to hack me? I'm just the small guy. And the answer is because cyber criminals are criminals and not all of them are looking to make headlines. They're not all looking to climb the Mount Everest of hacks. They want to make a quick buck. And if your small or medium sized business is low hanging fruit to them because you have failed to adequately prepare for that type of situation, then you're a prime target for them. You're you're a quick buck. And so they're going to go after you, even though you're not a household name. But, you know, in terms of M&A, it's not just a question of bringing in a Trojan horse, so to speak. It's a more fundamental question of, is the transaction permissible on its face? Often the target of the of the acquisition or the merger is actually the the information. It's the customer database, it's the marketing, it's all of these things. And the target may have actually 
contracted itself out of the ability to transfer that data to the acquirer. And that's where the, the privacy policies come into place, because if you are committing to your customers that you're not going to transfer their information without their permission, then the merger or the acquisition may not be permissible on its face unless you have a way to gain those customers' permission or to change your own policy when it suits you if you've given yourself that out in in your agreements with your customers. So it's it's again it's it's not just that in a merger you may be onboarding a, a Trojan horse, so to speak, because maybe there's an ongoing breach in the systems that you're bringing on, but you may need to figure out how to get around a pre-existing contractual preclusion from obtaining that data in the first place. And if I, if I could add one more context to it, is it, where we see it a lot also is uh, in the bankruptcy and reorganization space where you have an entity who's maybe be getting foreclosed on or they may be being sold through a 363 type process in bankruptcy and the only valuable asset is the actual data and information system a you have a a an organization that was in dire financial straits and so when it was cutting back on things it may have cut back on cybersecurity and IT and so those systems may be very vulnerable but they also may the, the deal may be precluded by those contractual provisions I mentioned before where the company had committed to not selling the information. So again, these are these are issues that competent outside privacy and cyber counsel can help organizations work through with the assistance of technical consultants because we have the legal knowledge, we have a little bit of technical knowledge, but but we certainly need folks that have a lot of technical knowledge and a little bit of legal knowledge to, to help us out. Well, Eric, that was a perspective that I've never had. I can tell you that I have been at the forefront of multiple transactions, divestiture and merger. And from a security perspective, we wanted to make sure that there was no cyber risk transferred. I can tell you pretty confidently that in many of those cases, the legal and privacy risk, as you stated, was was not considered. At least I wasn't privy to it if it was, and most likely I would have been. So you have opened my eyes. I think I've called out three episodes that are coming. We're going to have an entire episode on M&A, <laughs> legal and privacy risk, because I'm sure there's more to dig into. As you started talking, I could think of how this could dovetail in a lot of different uh, directions as well. So so there you have it. If If you're asking the question, why do I need a cyber attorney? I'll say it first. I am a CISO who thought I knew what it was to do an M&A transaction from a cybersecurity perspective and what the risks are. He identified two things that I never thought about, and I'm pretty sure there are a lot more. And quite frankly, I shouldn't know them all because I'm not a legal professional. And that is why you need to bring them to the table. He talked about why we need to bring them to the table also from a product um, perspective as well as from just a business formulation. Coming up next, it's Ask the CISO Round. 
I think this is a perfect segue into our, our next piece of our show, which is uh, the Ask the CISO round. I know you had a question or, you know, it was a topic you wanted to discuss. What was that topic? So one of the things, and we mentioned it earlier, was, and one of the reasons why it's advisable to bring in outside counsel is this patchwork of different regulations and uh, obligations that organizations have depending on uh, whose jurisdiction they fall within. And so because we've got 50 different states and 50 different privacy policies and definitions of what is PII and what is an intrusion and what's not an intrusion and what requires notice and what, what doesn't. And so one thing we at Otterberg have been advocating for is more of a uniform national uh, policy to cut down on the compliance costs that organizations face in in making sure that they are adhering to to the regulations and that they're responding to incidents in in a proper way. And so I, I wanted to hear the perspective of a CISO such as yourself on would something like that make your life easier? Oh, wow. Where do I start with that? So would it make my life easier if there was a national privacy law? Short answer, I don't think so, believe it or not. That being said, this is a topic that I've thought about for a long time. And I love this topic for this show. And I'm fascinated to hear your thoughts because there is a, a dichotomy between cyber and legal and privacy that's not articulated very often. Right. So bear with me as I try to unpack this. Sure. I think we have two types of listeners on our show. There may be more, but it really comes down to legal professionals that want to learn more about cyber and then cyber professionals that want to learn more about the legal side of things. And I think our content is universal, of course, but for the most part, those are our target audiences. That's why we set out to do this show. And in one group, legal, highly focused on the black and white letter of the law. And then there's the cyber community who is, by and large, highly focused on managing risks, specifically cyber risk and mm -hmm. in risk management. Nothing is really black and white. There's always room for some gray area. Today, privacy falls in the black and white side of things. And it's usually paired with fines, lawsuits, some form of litigation. Hence the kind of coupling between legal and privacy that we see for the most part. And we talked about this previously on some uh, some of our other episodes, specifically the first and the second. But from a cyber perspective, there has been a shift slowly for some organizations and more rapidly for others that the notion of a compliant organization being a secure organization doesn't necessarily jive anymore. Compliance is the <laughs> result of good security, not the other way around. Right. Or in other words, in the pursuit of good security, you will almost always check the boxes for compliance outside of a few paperwork and process controls and frameworks. Now, from a security perspective, frameworks are more like guideposts. At least for me, that's how I view them. And standards are really no different. And all that to say, there is no way that most organizations who do business across multiple states can afford to or even want to keep up with 50 different varying forms of laws and regulations that are very black and white. 
I think an article that you wrote on this, actually, I did some research on you. I try to be a, a good host. An article you wrote, <laughs> you refer to it as a kaleidoscope or even a mosaic of different and inconsistent state level laws. And I know, for example, that there are 51 different breach notification laws, one for every state. And I think it's Puerto Rico is, is the 51st. That's absolutely insane. And it's ridiculous to keep up with. And it's asinine to think that someone's going to say 100 percent compliant with that. I do think, though, we need a universally accepted framework for policy. I think we need to exclude already working privacy frameworks like HIPAA, for mm-hmm. example. Right. Let's. Let's not complicate things that are already working and that are tailor built for its industry. Right. But at the same time, you brought it up. We need a universal definition for PII, for intrusion, for for notification, because we can't even agree upon that. Right. If we can't agree upon some of those fundamentals, we're going to have a problem coming up with the law. And then I wouldn't be opposed to a certification either. We have certifications for ISO. 27,001. I think there's a privacy one as well, but it's not widely accepted yet. And the reason why I, would be, I wouldn't be opposed to certification is because it provides a level of insurance, assurance. You know, we all have integrity, but at the same time, self-attestation, it's just not going to cut it if we're taking this seriously. I trust but verify. Absolutely. Reagan said it best, right? right? So if the nation ever decides to take a universal approach to privacy, I also think that we should start with what Europe started with the GDPR. Now that's going to take, and GDPR stands for Global Data Protection Regulation, for those that aren't familiar with it. It's going to take us swallowing our pride because it would be openly admitting that Europe is the leader in this space. Now we all know that, but no one's actually come out and said it or done things that, you know, that demonstrate it. GDPR is not perfect. Nothing, nothing ever will be in my opinion, but a lot of organizations have already put in the programs, the processes, and the infrastructure to align with it. So if if we can align with a framework that uses GDPR as the basis, we can really expedite the adoption. And, and back to my original point, because I know I said a lot here, I think in the pursuit of good security, we will address many components of good privacy. And in pursuit of good privacy, we will accomplish the intent of what any national law or standard would you know, would give us. Now, even if that's not quote unquote by the letter of the law. Now, as a lawyer, I'm really interested on in what you think about that. You know, it, it reminds me of something that, and I can't believe I'm going to quote him, but something that my ethics professor talked about in law school, a concept he referred to as moral pluck, which is doing the right thing, even if it's antithetical to the exact code or or written law. And that seems to be what you're saying, not so much that you would purposely violate a regulation or a statute, but rather that this is a an arena where if you're focused on good security and a common sense approach to privacy, you should, if the regulations are properly enacted by default comply with them and what what i worry about quote another professor of mine my economics professor from undergrad is the situation where if you're looking at it at a graph and you see the economy is doing something by the time 
the regulators are identifying that the economy is doing something and they enact a proposed solution to that problem, the economy has changed and you're having the potentially the opposite effect on the problem that you intended because you know it's moving and, and the regulatory response is behind it. And I, I fear that we see that with privacy and cyber. And so whatever we draft <clears throat> has to be malleable enough to anticipate what the next technology is going to entail and what the next cyber and privacy problems are going to be. And, and so we've got to build in that that flexibleness and uh, try to anticipate five, 10 years, 15 years out, you know, and not uh, get ourselves a debate about today's technology, because if, if that's what we're talking about, we're too late. And we, we saw that somewhat recently at the Supreme Court with the debate over TCPA and what constitutes an auto dialer and what what doesn't. And Congress was was talking about technology in the early 1980s that's being debated in, in 2021. So that's that's my other hesitancy about uh, regulation and, and why I I like your idea of certification that can be a little bit more timely and, and flexible and be be something that's enacted by professionals with expertise in these areas as opposed to uh, legislators who are just kind of doing a knee-jerk response to a popularly perceived problem. Absolutely. And, you know, to to your point, technology is moving so fast, right? So uh, three small examples. One, we just did a show on data brokers. What are we going to do with those guys? I think there's going to be more data brokers 10 years from now, right? And then two, AI and machine learning and deep fakes, they're going they're going nuts and they're rampant and new organizations are popping up left and right. That's a large amount of data that we need to figure out how exactly with this privacy regulation aligned with it. And then I go with something even more personal and relevant, COVID-19. Today, organizations are collecting that data on their employees. That's okay because by and large, most of these privacy regulations that are out there, they don't include employer data. But what happens when the local restaurant wants to take note of all the people that have taken the vaccine or have had COVID so that they know if they should have let you let you in or not, or to maybe have an expedited process for getting in so you don't have to you know, bring your card? Or, or what happens when all of these different COVID-19 passports get shared and proliferated all over the place. How does that apply? And individuals are collecting privacy data uh, on people, not because they're intentionally trying to do it, but the way we define privacy is privacy, you know, data subjects, it's really cloudy. I mean, IP address is considered sensitive in GDPR. So I, I think the enforcement side of things is going to be the the hard part. And if you can't enforce a law, it's like I tell my employees, like I tell my team, if we create a policy that we can't enforce, it's just a recommendation. Right. That's right. The same thing with the law, right? If we create a law and then we're not enforcing, it's just paper paperwork that was pushed and it was very expensive to push through that it's just a paperweight at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, what, one thing, I, I get uh, contacted very often by law students seeking employment, obviously, in, in the cyberspace. And what I tell some some of them 
is that they might want to consider starting their careers in governmental service and and be one of the people that helps to develop good regulations. And then if they want to leave public service and not be part of the revolving door that, that we're also cynical of, but but in a good way, then go out into the private sector and, and help folks you know, comply with the regulations that, that they help to help to draft is uh, is a good way for people to get started. Yeah, I think that that is a that is a good point. I guess I have one last question on the law, and I'm curious on what a you know a legal professional thinks. Say we come up with this law and we find a way to make it happen, and let's just say it happens in six months. Not happening. I know it's not feasible, not possible, <laughs> but let's just say it happened in six months. Do we have that law supersede all the state laws? I think the term is preemption, or yep. is it you know paired with the individual state laws? Yeah, I'll give the legal answer, which is it, it depends. And <laughs> I think it depends on how comprehensive the law is is going to be. And is it going to step in and do everything that each of the law, the, the most, uh, I don't want to use the word restrictive, but the most comprehensive current law does. And if it matches that and doesn't leave additional space then then it will subsume everything. So I guess an analogy would be the government set certain standards for, for car emissions, right? And then California decide, decided to be out in front and, and make it more, you know, make it so manufacturers had to be more compliant and it that becomes the, the default national standard. I think that, you know, it depends on what the federal government, if that's who does something, winds up winds up doing. That makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like California with CCPA in that they don't actually include HIPAA. They don't actually include right. employee data because there are other things that are already covering that. Right. 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 And what you what you may see, uh, just to kind of bring it back to COVID, you may see the government not so much acting by enacting laws, but by using its power of the purse to encourage certain behaviors and so mandating that you know much like they are with covid okay all hospital workers must be vaccinated they may say okay all government vendors and they are doing this uh, in the pentagon for instance but all government vendors have to have this this type of privacy policy this type of cybersecurity certification and so that may be a workaround to the legislative problem and gaining consensus in Congress. It's crazy you said that we're thinking the same way. My thought was, and this is just me sitting on my couch, right? I can always come up with crazy ideas. But if we did go through with the certification approach, you get a tax break, right? So we don't have a way to enforce it. One company is not going to require another company has a privacy certification. This is really for the greater of all of our, you know, for, of the nation. If we go a certification route, anyone that has a certification and is in good standing, you get X percent tax break. That way, companies are incentivized to do it, and ultimately, they're protecting the data of the nation. It's just an idea. Yeah, but, well, uh, I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't sell yourself short that, you know, know that there aren't companies that that don't have the market power to to dictate other people's level of of cybersecurity mm-hmm. compliance because 
we do see that in the marketplace now, especially with, with large financial institutions where they require audits and certain levels of certifications from their outside vendors and business partners. So I think if, if they continue to, to lead on that front, there, there's a uh, we'll, we'll, I guess, use another Ronald Reagan quote that has a trickle down effect in, in that way also. But um, I, I think that there's a real opportunity for the, for the government to lead here as well as to just out and out protect us from from foreign and domestic threat actors, because I think that's one thing we haven't talked about today is we've talked about what are what's the onus on us as organizations to protect ourselves. But what is the onus on the government to stop attacks before they happen? Since we are in the theme of Ronald Reagan quotes, I'll end with one of mine. That's a favorite. In God, we trust everybody else we monitor. Yeah, uh, I think that's a uh, that's apt and inappropriate here. OK, so the last part of the show, we we asked you one, one simple question. If someone is interested or trying to find out, you know, how do I go about engaging in cyber attorney? What's one one bit of advice you would give them? First, answer the question, why do you want a cyber attorney? Do do you want somebody because you have to check a, an internal checklist or do you want somebody to to come in and really give you? comprehensive advice on on structuring your cyber and your privacy program. So answer the question of why am I looking for this professional to come in and help my organization? I think that's a very perfect and succinct response. You know what, Eric, you have been a abundance of knowledge and information. I learned a lot on this show. One of the things I love about the show is I get to learn. I don't just get to talk. You have made me a better cyber and uh, cyber legal professional. So I definitely appreciate that. My pleasure. Like, likewise, this was a lot of fun and very, uh, very stimulating conversation. A lot of good ideas. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions or ideas from today's show, share them with us by emailing cyberside at epicglobal.com. Don't forget to follow us on socials. You can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram by searching for Epic Global. Until next time, stay cyber smart. <laughs>